What I would like to do tonight, really, is to be descriptive rather than prescriptive. I think it's very important that we should find out uh, about not only what is the situation, which, as John said, is the world we inhabit, but how we've got there. And we can see the roots by which we have got there, because I think that helps some of us understand a bit more clearly what we're up against and then develop strategies to uh, counteract what we're up against. But I want to begin by going back to 202 years ago, almost exactly. November the 10th, uh, 1793, morning of that day. And an extraordinary event took place in the Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. It was the Festival of Liberty and Reason. The mayor had proclaimed this festival three days before. As all the officials and as the ordinary citizens entered the cathedral, they saw an amazing sight. All the Christian symbols had been covered up, and their place was taken by the symbols of a strange religion. Rising up in the nave was an improvised mountain, and on its top was perched a small Greek temple dedicated to philosophy. On either side of it were the bus of philosophers, probably Voltaire, meant to represent Voltaire, Rousseau, Franklin and Montesquieu. Then there was a bizarre ceremony. Its high point was when there emerged from the temple a beautiful woman, she was actually an actress of the Paris Opera, dressed in red, white and blue garments. She was meant to personify liberty. The spectators then started to render homage to this creature. They raised their arms and they started singing a hymn. And the words were written by Chénier. Come, holy liberty, inhabit this temple, become the goddess of the French people. Well, soon after the festival, there was a decree from the Constitutional Convention saying that Notre Dame should be known henceforth as the Temple of Reason. Well, as John has said, my subject tonight is optimistic humanism. And it is important that we go back to the 18th century because what we understand by that today actually goes back to the 18th century. And indeed, that festival of liberty and reason. Now, of course, there is another sort of humanism. This is the humanism that was a distinguishing mark of Renaissance Europe. The Renaissance, as you know, was a time when there was a new confidence in human nature. But the God of the Bible, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, wasn't excluded. And today, this is the tradition of many of those who are academically interested, for example, in what we call the humanities subjects that we study uh, in our universities that deal with all aspects of human nature, the non-rational as well as the rational side of human nature, history, the fine arts, philosophy, sometimes theology, all lumped together under that term, humanities. And there, have been, there, there need be nothing wrong, of course, in that sort of humanism. There have been outstanding Christian humanists. And C.S. Lewis was one such 20th century Christian humanist. 
And indeed, the Christian needs to be a humanist because of what the Bible teaches as a doctrine of creation and the fact that mankind is made in God's image and so must be respected. But the second sort of humanism is a very different matter and its roots, as I say, go back to the 18th century and particularly France and the so-called Enlightenment, which was centred on France. There was an assault going on at that time quite aggressively against the Christian faith. Now that, of course, is the background to this event, or that event at Notre Dame. One of the key figures was Voltaire. He identified Christianity as an infamous thing to be crushed. Ecrasez les fame, crush the infamous thing. He was wanting to replace Christianity by a religion of reason, virtue and liberty. This was a time, of course, when revolutionaries wanted to de-Christianize France. They wanted to set up a new cult, as they said, drawn from the bosom of nature. This would, from now on, be, quotes, a natural religion. So we've got to understand what's going on at this time. Parallel to the revolution in politics, there was a revolution in religion being attempted. But uh, we need to realise, to be fair, that these religions were not all of a piece. Some were deist. That is to say, they believed in a supreme being. They were not, therefore, atheistic. But they did not believe in the God of the Bible. Deism, of course, is the sort of thing, sadly, you get from even many clergy today, I'm afraid, in the Protestant churches. It's a sort of Freemasonry religion. Here, to quote, is the Republican Creed of 1793. I believe in a supreme being who has created men free and equal, who has made them to love and not hate one another, who wishes to be honoured by virtues and not by fanaticism. So you've got deists. In addition to those, there were nationalists. They generated religion of the republic. They deified the fatherland. But then there was a third element. Besides the deists and nationalist cults, and there were actual cults going on, as you've, uh, I've illustrated from Notre Dame. This was, quotes, the religion of humanity. Now that was a phrase uh, invented by Tom Paine, the religion of humanity. And for him, it meant a universalist faith in man and in man's ability to create, with or without God's assistance, a new kingdom of man. And this would usher in a dawn of happiness, social justice and peace. So all this was the background to what was going on in France at the end of the 18th century. Now true, all these cults collapsed with Napoleon's concordat with the Pope, for that actually restored Roman Catholicism as the state religion of France. But what is important for us is this. Things have never been the same since, in Europe or America, since this time when there was a quite unique attack on the Christian faith from the philosophers of the Enlightenment. For this is the period we're talking about. Now, the best way to see the difference between Enlightenment deism and creedal Christianity is to listen to Tom Paine in his 18th century book, The Age of Reason, 
He says this. This is a quote from Paine. I do not believe in the creed professed by the Jewish church, by the Roman church, by the Greek church, by the Turkish church, by the Protestant church, nor by any church that I know. My own mind is my church. Will you immediately put that against the Bible and the church's creed? The creeds of the church. You can see then immediately that this view of Tom Paine is not from the Bible uh, or the Apostles and Nicene creeds. It is, of course, totally from himself. But the most significant conflict between the Christian faith and this embryonic humanism was over anthropology, the understanding of man and human nature in its essence. Because the Bible clearly teaches that human nature is fallen, sin is real, and until that is dealt with, there is no hope for man. And that is why the cross of Christ is so central. And why we must know that there on the cross, Christ actually bore our guilt. And that is the only way to forgiveness of sins and to be truly human and living as God intended. But nothing was more anathema to the deist and indeed to the Enlightenment as a whole than the doctrine of original sin. It was an obsession with Voltaire. He attacked the great Pascal for his talk about sin time after time. He called him, that's Pascal, Voltaire called Pascal the sublime misanthrope. Let me quote Voltaire from his philosophical dictionary. We are told that human nature is essentially perverse, that man is born diabolical and wicked. Nothing could be further from the truth. Man is not born wicked. He becomes wicked as he becomes sick. And Voltaire actually blamed Augustine for this doctrine. Voltaire said, this is what we should say to each individual person. You are born good. See how frightful it would be to corrupt the purity of your being. Remember the dignity of man. And you see what was happening. At a stroke, Voltaire was rendering, or so he thought, the atonement unnecessary. And of course, Christ is unnecessary. So before you know where you are, the Enlightenment is into multifaithism. This is where it all comes from in the modern period. The one Catholic Church now has to embrace the wise of the whole world, from Peking to Paris. And as the great Enlightenment poet, the poet of deism, Alexander Pope put it so elegantly, Father of all, in every age, in every clime adored, by saint, by savage, and by sage, Jehovah, Jove, and Lord. Alexander Pope was the complete Enlightenment humanist. And uh, some of you remember the words that he penned on another occasion. The proper study of mankind is man. But in the final analysis... This deism of a humanistic sort failed. It never really became a substitute for the orthodox Christian faith. And this was undoubtedly due to the effects of the evangelical revival in England in the second half uh, of the 18th century 
uh, and uh, into the earlier part of the 19th century, because deism neither held the masses nor did actually uh, hold the intellectuals. Many of the intellectuals moved from deism to an extreme scepticism or even atheism. Voltaire, in fact, was getting more and more atheistic. And uh, the group around the notorious Baron de Holbach in Parish went far beyond Voltaire. This was, in fact, a dogmatic atheism come nature worship. Volbeck prayed to nature as though she was a goddess. I quote, O nature, sovereign of all being, and you, her adorable daughters, virtue, reason, and truth, be ever our only divinities. Now, along with this dogmatic atheism went, of course, a scepticism about absolutes of any sort in the universe. Diderot, he was another of the key players at this time, saw everything in nature, including man's ethical ideas, as in a state of flux. He was a relativist, in fact, one of the very first thoroughgoing relativists, which, of course, is, uh, is the common currency for today. This is where uh, the modern relativism actually comes from. He argued that not only man's ethical ideas are relative to the structure of his body, but also that they're relative to his changing experience and uh, social needs. Then there was Rousseau. They're all different. It's a kind of mood that's going on at the time of the Enlightenment. Rousseau was far more mild, and that is why he's been far more dangerous. He exalted reason, but in the last analysis, he was prepared to base religion on feeling. And a whole new way of doing theology comes from this source. Rousseau makes his Savoyard vicar say this, and I quote, Feeling precedes knowledge. The decrees of conscience are not judgments, but feelings. Although ideas come from without, the feelings by which they are weighed are within us. Too often does reason deceive us. We have only too good a right to doubt her. But conscience never deceives us. She is the true guide of man. It is to the soul what instinct is to the body. I feel God in myself. This is this retreat from reason to feelings. Voltaire actually was more objective, but Rousseau ultimately was subjective. But for reasons like this, this is why the age of the Enlightenment, was actually an age of faith. It was, of course, faith in man. It could or could not go with a sort of vague belief in a supreme being. But essentially, it was religious in believing in man, whatever else you believed in. And it was, therefore, religious humanism. As I say, might or might not be combined with some sort of faith in a supreme being. Actually, in the 18th century, it usually was combined with a faith in a supreme being. But this was not necessary to it. Fundamentally, there were two sides to this humanistic faith. And both strands led to its becoming optimistic humanism. First, there was a belief in man's power. That is, in his greatness uh, in morality, or at least uh, his ability to grow in virtue. And also his power to understand the laws of nature 
uh, and so to be technologically efficient and competent. There was also the belief that you could uh, engineer society as well as things, uh, and as one historian has put it, there was a belief uh, in the ability ultimately to reduce all life and all history to a rational plan. In a word, to accomplish in time what had previously been considered to be the work of eternity. To carve out on earth a great kingdom or empire of man, morally better and intellectually superior to anything that had gone before. Now this was, as you can see, simply a faith. It was substantially different from the humanism uh, of the Renaissance, although in one sense it derived from it. Again, let me quote, the humanistic enthusiasm of the Renaissance had been tempered by the conviction that fate rules half our actions, or a little more than half, as Machiavelli had said. But the Enlightenment proposed to take fate by the throat and eliminate it from human affairs, except for certain unavoidable vicissitudes of personal life and the final intrusion of death. And this was the faith of men like... Uh, Diderot, D'Alembert, Helvetius and Condorcet. At this time, the encyclopedia was being invented and it was the great means of communication for this new faith. And the magnum opus of the movement was the Encyclopedia of the Arts, Sciences and Crafts. And Diderot and D'Alembert were the co-editors. This was, in fact, a 28-volume digest of uh, knowledge, scientific knowledge, technical knowledge, as it then was. It was the age's greatest symbol of the new humanistic faith in the power of man. It was, in fact, a summa to put alongside Thomas Aquinas, summa theologica. This was, in fact, a summa humanistica, if we may coin the phrase. Thomas focused on God, Thomas Aquinas, as, of course, did Calvin in his great institutes. The encyclopedia focused on man. As I've been indicating, it, you would not expect the encyclopedia to be totally atheistic. Indeed, in a preliminary discourse, D'Alembert refers to a god who, he says, must hold the first rank among spiritual beings by virtue of his nature and by the need which we have of knowing him, Below this supreme being are the created spirits of revelation, of which revelation teaches us the existence. Next in order comes man. But he then goes on to complain of the despotism of theology. Uh, and in his map work of human knowledge, theology and religion is relegated to a very minor place. Below, of course, quotes, the science of man and the science of nature. However, the encyclopedia's humanism, thoroughgoing humanism, is quite explicit in a number of articles, nor is it all unreasonable. For example, Diderot says, it is the presence of man that gives interest and meaning to the existence of living things. But then he goes on to say, in this work, why not give to man the place that is allotted to him in the universal scheme of things? Why not make him the centre around which everything revolves? And another article stated that the philosopher's chief business should be the study of human society. Again, quite acceptable. But listen to then what it says. Civil society is, so to speak, a divinity for him on earth. He burns incense to it. He honours it by attention to its duties and by a sincere desire not to be a useless or embarrassing member of it. 
What is going on is little by little a change of mood as much as anything else. Behind the whole encyclopedia was the belief in scientific and technological progress. Its danger was not that it was anti-God, but that God was being edged out. This in turn led to the new belief in salvation by education. The tax collector Helvetius, in his treatise On Man, published in 1772, believed, in fact, that you could engineer society itself. And this was going to have profound subsequent effects. With Locke, he believed that a child was born with a mind like a blank sheet, sort of tabula rasa. All you then had to do was change the environment, educate people better, give them different laws, and that is it. Eureka. The kingdom of heaven. This is, in fact, what he said. Education makes us what we are. A different government gives us, by turns, to the same nation, a character noble or base. The almost universal unhappiness of man and of nations arises from the imperfections of their laws and the too unequal partition of their riches. <coughs> Here is the belief in education and legislation that is the modern faith of the Western world in a nutshell. And this is where it all starts. Well, that was the first strand of this humanism, belief in the power of man. The second strand was belief in the dignity of man. Now, had this not been an ingredient, Helvetius' behaviorism would have reduced mankind to a machine and probably would have not got very far and certainly wouldn't have claimed any allegiance. But an incipient utilitarianism, this is the desire for the greatest happiness of the greatest people, meant that power was not an ultimate value. Rather, happiness was the ultimate value. That's what they were going for. That's what they were trying to sell to people. The bettering of the human condition. Now, of course, it's question-begging what counts as better. But these folk had no doubts. In the 18th century, the Enlightenment humanists said it was material comforts. Nor can you blame them over that. When the many uh, and the masses were suffering abject poverty and degradation. This was a fine strand of social justice. And here, we need to note, they were unlike the Renaissance humanists because few of them would actually have had a vision of general happiness measured in terms of legal security and improved living conditions for all, which is what was part of the Enlightenment agenda. And at this point, they stole a march on the contemporary church and the generality of Christian people. These 18th century humanists had a level of indignation at the social order that has to be acknowledged. Now, no doubt this was because the church was so corrupt and not doing its stuff. They were indeed the first to major on social justice rather than practical social work. And a new word was coined at the time, beneficence. In contrast to charity, this emphasised not so much giving to the poor as attacking social abuses. Now, Condorcet said that they uh, were now a class of men who protested against, quotes, all the crimes of fanaticism and tyranny. They sought to bid kings, I quote, captains, magistrates and priests to show respect for human life, laying to their charge with vehemence and severity the blood their policy of, or their indifference still spilled on the battlefield or on the scaffold, 
and finally taking for their battle cry, reason, tolerance, humanity. And again, to be fair, these humanists were in the forefront of human rights and civil liberties. The Italian philosopher Beccaria wrote a famous essay on, quotes, crimes and punishments. This was 1764. And he attacked the inquisitorial violence of the church and uh, all the executions that were going on for religious causes. He visited the prisons in Milan and he hoped for a day when, quotes, compassion and humanity shall penetrate the iron gates of dungeons. We have to understand why there was a level of credibility to some of these most bizarre notions that were going around. Because there was a concern for the suffering. So these two strands were woven together with these humanists. The belief in the power of man, but also a belief in the dignity and the nobility of man. But, and this is what is so important, this led to a completely new doctrine, to use the words of Condorcet. It was, again, I quote him, the indefinite perfectibility of the human race. And in that spirit, Condorcet wrote his Progress of the Human Mind. And this has been classed as the last will and testament of the Enlightenment. And let me just give you the words in full. No bounds have been fixed to the improvement of the human race. When you talk about the Enlightenment, this is what we're talking about. No bounds have been fixed to the improvement of the human race. The perfectibility of man is absolutely infinite. Everything tells us that we are approaching one of the grand revolutions of the human race. Now, Godessay knew, of course, that at present the world was not where it should be. He knew there were still crimes and injustices in abundance. So how did he adjust to the evils of the present? It's amazing, really, and with hindsight, it looks pathetic. But these were his famous words. It is in the contemplation of this picture of posterity, posterity is the key concept, that the philosopher finds his true recompense for virtue. The contemplation of this picture is an asylum in which the memory of his persecutors does not follow him. An asylum in which, living in imagination with mankind re-established in its rights and in its true nature, he can forget mankind corrupted and tormented by greed, fear, envy. It is in this asylum that he truly lives with his fellows, in a heaven which his reason has created and which his love of humanity embellishes with the purest joy. Now something very sad is going on here. What is happening is that the humanists are substituting the expectations of an earthly golden age, the hope uh, of what succeeding generations will become, they're substituting that for, of course, the hope of heaven, the true hope of heaven. And in fact, Diderot was quite explicit. I quote that posterity, he said, is for the philosopher while the other world is for the religious. Well, this then is your genuine optimistic humanism. And that's the seedbed for what we live in now. 
We must move on. And we move on 100 years. Because this optimistic humanism, in one sense, never really took off. It's had huge influence in the ideas that it spawned, but it never really took off. It certainly didn't reach the masses. It was a mixture of the good and the bad, and in digression, the reason why uh, it has come through to the 20th century is because of the, quotes the intelligentsia, which was the kind of cafe uh, inhabiting uh, class uh, in France at the end of the last century, which has been the, as it were, the stream that has fed a lot of these ideas into what Peter Berger and others call the new class, uh, the current educational empire, the media, the therapeutic services, uh, through educational institutions, teacher training colleges and all the rest of it, when suddenly it's to do with the way the technology of the modern world, which gave rise to this humanism, has expanded the need for education. And when you have such a large educational kind of constituency, or rather um, the whole of the world, or the Western world, needing to be educated, you've got to have people teaching them. And I don't know if any of you, some of you are teachers and some of you may have lectured in universities, but I can remember that you just have to teach those kids something, or the students. I mean, you, you, you've got lectures in front of you. And uh, where do you go for material? I mean, you've got some things you want to communicate, but they, you know, you've got a period and you've got to fill them. Well, you just go to the books. What are the books? There they all are in France. That's where the whole Western intellectual tra tradition, which wasn't overtly Christian and theological, was located. It's quite amazing how the influence of these ideas has actually percolated through, through kind of systems and structures in the 20th century. But at the time, they actually were very, very minimal, or rather in their, their, their significance. They didn't reach the masses. And of course, what they were teaching was a mixture of good and bad. We need to realize that, as I hope I'm explaining. Its philosophy was really a matter of wishes, uh, offering, sadly, false hopes long-term, that could only lead to disillusionment. And obviously, it's anti-Christian. This goes without saying. It's so obvious. Though it's dis deism, this is what we need to realize. The deism gave it credibility with the undiscerning. And in the churches in the um, 18th century, I mean, there was nearly a collapse of the entire Christian church to deism. In the same way as today, you're seeing the, the, all the, the mainline churches collapsing under a kind of modern secular Humanism. You know, just reinterpreting the gospel in these terms. This is exactly what happened in the 18th century. That's why, of course, the, the, there was such a need for the evangelical revival. But we do have to realize that they did bring some humanitarian challenges. And in that sense, it was the case of the children of this age being wiser than the children of light. But, of course, it was only when these uh, humanitarian challenges were married with evangelical religion that you actually got effects because it, it was actually, members of the Enlightenment were actually attacking slavery before Wilberforce. But it was Wilberforce who had, as it were, the motive, the power, the energy, and everything that went with the gospel to get the thing through. And uh, uh, as you know. But 100 years later on, let's get back. What do you find, 100 years after all this? In 1882, I don't know if uh, you've heard about this last week, but Nietzsche is writing the parable of the madman. Now, uh, in the parable, 
the madman rushes into the marketplace and cries out, I quote, I seek God. Where is God gone? I mean to tell you, we have killed him, you and I. God is dead. The holiest and the mightiest that the world has hitherto possessed has bled to death under our knife. Who will wipe the blood from us? That was Nietzsche. Now, Nietzsche was mad himself. But he was drawing attention to the fact that those who opposed uh, the gospel, those who were disbelievers, had moved into a new phase. This was aggressive doubt. And this was aggressive disbelief. We're talking now not the end of the 18th century. We're talking now the end of the 19th century. Now, earlier in the mid-19th century, 1859, John Stuart Mill had described England as destitute of faith, but terrified at scepticism. In 1879, John Henry Newman, who became an Anglican, who became a Catholic, Cardinal Newman, warned against the great apostasy that he saw taking place in all the countries of the Western world. And that apostasy was, he says, liberalism in religion. And by liberalism, he meant, I quote, the doctrine that there is no positive truth in religion, but that one creed is as good as another. That was 1879. Gladstone, the Prime Minister, put the Annus Horribilis as 1872. He said this in that year. I quote, I doubt whether any such noxious crop has been gathered in such rank abundance from the press of England in any former year of our literary history as in this present year of our redemption. It is not only the Christian church or only the Holy Scripture or only Christianity which is attacked. The disposition is boldly proclaimed to deal with root and branch and to snap utterly the ties which, under the still venerable name of religion, unite man with the unseen world and lighten the struggles and the woes of life by the hope of a better land. That's Gladstone. Nor was it just people like Gladstone. Because you had people like Matthew Arnold who saw that there was, as he put it, a revolution in thinking about religion taking place. Everywhere, he said, there was the spread of scepticism. And no longer, this is what they saw as significant, no longer had the Christian faith a hold on the masses. Now this, of course, was the period of the growing debate between religion and science. It was at this time that Thomas Huxley invented the word agnostic. Uh, Auguste Comte, the French philosopher, who actually succeeded Condorcet, being born four years after he died, had already invented the word sociology and positivism. Now, positivism was a theory of social evolution. Kant argued that society went through three stages. First, there was a theological stage, or fictitious stage, as you put it. Then there was the metaphysical or abstract stage. And last, there was the scientific or positive stage. And Kant was trying, as he thought, to get society to move from the metaphysical, the abstract, the theorizing stage, having forgotten all the theology and you could get rid of that. Um, you're now in that middle stage. He wanted to get society from the abstract stage to the scientific. And when he tried to develop a quasi-church to promote his views, which he did, 
because this is religious. Huxley called it Catholicism minus Christianity. Well, with all these ideas in the air, it is not surprising that in 1851, a freethinker, George Hoyliake, wanted less alienating terms than infidel or atheist. Very important, this. This is a very common ploy to change the language, to slide something else in so no one knows what's going on. You know, this happens today with, you, call, you take feticide and you call it abortion. You take buggery and you call it gay sex. You take, uh, you call fornicators sexually active. Exactly the same thing. And he took these words, there was infidel, quite clear what that meant. Atheist, quite clear what that meant. And uh, so what he discovered and coined in 1851 was the word secularist. And uh, in 1851, he helped found the National Secular Society. Now, when Gladstone referred to the, that noxious crop gathered from the press of England, he had in mind three books, one by Herbert Spencer, one by David Strauss, and the other by Winwood Reed. Now, Spencer is important in this whole think our thinking on optimistic humanism because he was the great champion of evolutionism. Now, evolutionism was and is a view of society that sees society continually improving itself, learning from its mistakes. Kant, August Kant, had an evolutionary view of society, as we've seen, going from the theological to the metaphysical to the scientific. Spencer, he's the last part, he died in 1903, but he was... Uh, in that last part of the 19th century. He extended Kant's ideas and took on where Kant left off. In 80, 1867, he wrote in his Principles of Sociology that social life has a natural tendency to develop from simple to complex forms and steadily to get better. He had actually begun to develop his views before Darwin's Origin of Species actually came out. And we need to realise this. You see, Darwin didn't just kind of look at the facts and come up with this theory. He was part of a total worldview that was going on. So this is in his mind, so to speak, and he gets the facts and has to put them through this sieve. And so that's why you get uh, evolution evolving, if I may put it that way, the way it does. It was certainly not pure science. And then Spencer later, after he read Darwin, said that Darwin confirmed his own views. And so you got from him social Darwinism. But again, it's very interesting. Spencer was not an out-and-out -out atheist. This is what he wrote. Listen to this. Very likely, there will ever remain a need to give shape to that indefinite sense of an ultimate existence, which forms the basis of our intelligence. We shall always be under the necessity of contemplating it as some mode of being, that is, of representing it to ourselves in some form of thought, however vague, and we shall not err in doing this so long as we treat every notion we thus frame as merely a symbol, utterly without resemblance to that for which it stands. Well, you can hear echoes of that, can you not? In the remarks of the former Archbishop of York and David Jenkins, the Bishop of Durham, in the way they talk about symbols relating to the realities of the faith. 
Where does it all come from? There's this lineage, how we need to realize it. You see, humanism, as Spencer uh, embodies it and propounds it, is a religion. And we must insist upon this. The word secular is very clever. It makes people think that secularism, which in practice means humanism today, is not a religion. And so humanism is not a religion. And so the current shibboleth of our educators, liberal churchmen and media gurus, claiming that it is more neutral being a humanist than a Christian, are quite false. Well, that is, if I may put it, the second period of humanism. Let's now move to the present, the world in which we inhabit. And we go to 1933. Interestingly enough, that coincides with the rise of Hitler. And in 1933, which shows you the decadence of the entire Western world, you've got Hitler on the one hand, and what you've got going on on the other hand is the famous Humanist Manifesto. Now, it quite explicitly identified humanism as religious. There was no actually hiding the fact anymore. What it deplored was, I quote, the identification of the word religion with doctrines and methods which have lost their significance and which are powerless to solve the problem of human living in the 20th century. Now, among the major theses of its own religious humanism were the following. Let me quote from, this is from the manifesto. Right. Religious humanists regard the universe as self-existing and not created. Humanism asserts that the nature of the universe depicted by modern science makes unacceptable any supernatural or cosmic guarantees of human values. That's no absolutes. That's a kind of relativism on morality. Religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seeks its development and fulfillment in the here and now. That's a very interesting one. Because at the time, no one saw the great significance in that. But, of course, with the whole development of what has gone on since the 1960s, listen to that again. Religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life. That's the, the kind of ideology behind most education. Developing your potential. Whether you have to be Hitler or Mother Teresa. Doesn't make sense, does it? But that was hidden there, and most people didn't see it at the time. I go on. In place of the old attitudes involved in worship and prayer, the humanist finds his religious emotions expressed in a heightened sense of personal life and in a cooperative effort to promote social well-being. And then man is at last becoming aware that he alone is responsible for the realization of the world of his dreams, that he has within himself the power for its achievement. Again, notice that the authors actually are not, if you look at the logic, they are not denying the existence of God. Now, there's a silence, but it leaves a kind of chink for the possibility to be open. But the whole drift of what they say is to deny that trusting God could have any practical effect whatsoever. Whether or not God is thought to exist, man must, they imply, live as if he did not exist. So note 
th th that relativism, the moral values with no supernatural or cosmic guarantees, morality, the only morality that you can have is based on human experience, there's no absolutes, and then that phrase, the complete realisation of human personality, which was subsequently so significant in the 60s and following. Now, this human manifesto was generally ignored. The authors actually are now forgotten. But the giant of the group, and in fact the principal author of the document, was none other than John Dewey, the philosopher and educational theorist, who has personally shifted the entire mass, if I may put it that way, of Western education into a humanist direction. This manifesto certainly reflected his views, and through this document he was able to disseminate them widely and strategically. Forty years later, there was a second humanist manifesto, 1973. There was nothing substantially new about it, except that this is more aggressively against traditional religion. The 1993 edition, interestingly also, had ignored uh, and admitted sex to deal with the matter of sex. The 1973 document decides to come clean. And uh, it says quite a bit about it. I'll only quote uh, one uh, bit where it says, in the area of sexuality, we believe that intolerant attitudes often cultivated by orthodox religions and puritanical cultures unduly repress sexual conduct. And they go on, short of harming others or compelling them to do likewise, Individuals should be permitted to express their sexual proclivities and pursue their lifestyles as they desire. Again, this is the kind of normal way uh, that educationists encourage people to think and the sort of morality that they try and teach. The signatories, actually, of this second document included Flew, Anthony Flew, A.J. Eyre, Francis Crick, Andre Sakharov, Isaac, uh, Joseph Fletcher, he was, some of you know, an Episcopalian uh, clergyman, the proponent of situational ethics, and Betty Frieden, the uh, feminist. Now, the influence of these documents has been out of all proportion to their size, to either the size of the groups that have actually been responsible for them, or for the distribution of the documents, which was pretty minimal. It is, as I said earlier, with regard to the first uh, phase of the humanistic uh, movement, in the, the second, the modern humanistic movement, uh, in the Enlightenment, uh, it is that they have fed the values of what Peter Berger and others called the new class or the knowledge class. And thus, they have had a critical toehold in the training of our educators themselves, and then obviously the people uh, who are educated. As James Hitchcock says quite perceptively, many people imbibe their message without realizing that it is the creed of a particular movement at all. But the humanists have cleverly preempted the vocabulary of freedom. All we want is the right to believe our own creed as we concede to you the right to believe yours. This is quoting. Let us do away with all forms of intolerance. Yet in practice, as the Human Manifesto 2 particularly shows, humanists are intolerant of religious beliefs. Paul Kurtz, the editor of the Humanist magazine, says, Humanists 
cannot, in any fair sense of the word, apply to one who still believes in God uh, as the source and creator of the universe. Christian humanism would be possible only for those who are willing to admit that they are atheistic humanists. It surely does not apply to God-intoxicated believers. He goes on to say that humanism is squarely in opposition to movements which seek to impose an orthodoxy of belief or morality. So much for freedom for everyone. I must conclude. We must, as Christians, oppose this sort of optimistic secular humanism. Its history is complex. We need to know its roots to enable us to develop appropriate strategies to defeat its current influence. But we ourselves must never be anything other than Christian humanists. And we shouldn't therefore be frightened of the word humanist. In the same way, if I may say, we shouldn't be frightened of the word liberal. Sadly, liberal is someone... Theologically, we want to have nothing to do with, but we should be truly liberal. We should be free. We are free. The gospel is the gospel of freedom. Uh, and indeed, uh, true liberality is where you do recognize constraints. Same way as a bicycle wheel can only be freewheeling freely if it's held in by the hubnuts. And in the same way, you have to have restraints in life. And in the same way with humanism. Let's not surrender these terms to uh, people who are the very opposite uh, of uh, humanizing long term. Whatever their good intentions, the results are, of course, a dehumanizing of society and culture. No, we need to be Christian humanists because God has made humankind. God has made mankind. God has made each one of us. This is a good world, but fallen. How we need to recover, therefore, a sense of sin. But that is not dehumanizing. That is the only way to a true recovery of how God intended us to be. And that is why the true humanist preaches the cross of Christ and is interested at the same time in the wonderful world God has put us in. And as I said earlier, there have been outstanding Christian humanists. C.S. Lewis was such a 20th century Christian humanist. Indeed, the Christian needs to be a humanist because of the doctrine of creation and the fact that mankind is made in the image of God and so must be respected. Thank you very much, David. Um, I think we'll follow the tradition set by Leslie Newbigin last week to allow you not to leave the room, but um, to stand up and turn around if you want to and just chat for a couple of minutes. And then I hope that uh, release will release some questions and comments from you. So can we just do that for a, a couple of minutes, but please don't leave the room. Some people have turned that liberty into license and have actually left the room, but uh, however. <laughs> um, let me take the first question. Mike. Um, David, I wonder if you could speak to the 
sort of carry on a little further. Um, surprised you haven't said anything about uh, the fact there's no reason for optimism anymore. And really, where do we go, or where does the humanist go, faced with 200 years of what we've seen? <laughs> yes. No, I mean, uh, that's self-evident, I think. And um, I'm sure this is one of the reasons why there is... Uh, uh, a sort of retreat into now totally rationality. I mean, um, it's very difficult to sort of map out uh, everything, but one would, one would want to argue that um, what has happened since the 60s has been just that, that uh, the confidence in reason uh, has actually been exploded. I mean, it was the two world wars particularly. And uh, I think as far as America goes, because they're the lead society now, the Vietnam War had a very profound uh, influence on, on thinking. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, where does this kind of technological um, efficiency end you up, land you up? I mean, you know, just blasting into eternity uh, sort of hundreds of thousands of peasants in some tiny part of Southeast Asia. You know, who really wants that? And... Uh, you know, people still marry with this... Opti the, the optimistic bit is the utilitarian side, you know, the um, greatest happiness is the greatest number. And people realise that this kind of set of agendas didn't actually get you there. And so what you've got now is a very... Well, it's a serious uh, state of affairs that, uh, uh, yes, humanism is certainly not uh, the flavour of the month with many people. I mean, the whole popular culture, which is a sort of ultra-decadence. I mean, some of the um, rap music, I mean, those of you who are into that stuff, I mean, which is so uh, decrying of human nature. I mean, it's a kind of attack on people, things, sex, everything. Um, that, that's quite a frightening kind of reaction. So you're right. Yeah, I mean, what has happened? And the New Age movement, which is a totally irrational movement. But nevertheless, and this is the odd thing, that... Um, when it, the, the, the people are schizophrenic now. So when they sort of, you know, like John says, some people, when they go to church now, they take off their smart clothes, you know, and when they go to work, they wear suits. Um, uh, some people wear suits all the time. But, uh, uh, but you know, there is a sort of schizof there's a schi there's a schizophrenic um, attitude, isn't there, in the culture now, whereby um, there's this kind of irrationality going on, which is anti-humanistic, but nevertheless, when they're at their teacher training colleges and lecturing to the students, they buy into all this sort of um, theoretical humanism. And, uh, you know, that's what you get on the BBC. The unacknowledged philosophy is this. But how long yet that can last? And this is actually what is frightening. And that's why it seems to me the only hope is the gospel. Because um, I don't think this can last long. And um, then you get a complete breakdown of culture when you get, um, well, it's lawlessness in every sense. So you're quite right. Yes, I mean, the, the, the future from this is that um, the confidence of, of the sort of... Well, there, there are people who were 30s, 40s, 50s humanists. I think you're quite right, is going. But it's still there, unfortunately, in the, at, at an ideological level. Yes, Christian. You say how it uh, propagated through a fairly narrow channel in many ways of the intelligentsia and things, but in many ways, surely it's um, 
uh, great gain has been that it flatters man in his fallenness, mm. that with the pride that he can do things himself. And presumably that's why it's hanging on as well. Oh, yeah. Because of this. Oh yeah, I mean, on, that's why I came on. Sure, absolutely. I mean, from a from a Christian perspective, I'm mean, looking at it historically. It came through a narrow channel, but of course, one of the reasons why it hangs on is because um, uh, there is the pride uh, in human nature which refuses to acknowledge the fact of um, human sinfulness, and uh, it's that kind of Promethean desire to, you know, defy God. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's right at the heart of, of, of the problems. But I think, um, really, the most pernicious side of it all has been, in my judgment, that the, the loss of the doctrine of sin, this notion of the perfectibility of um, human nature, which is what is so wrong and so evil and caused so much disaster, you know. Because in one sense, I mean, the Christian <coughs> does believe that uh, this is God's world, and therefore you buy into a proper sort of scientific progressivism, uh, you know, that is all part of the Christian agenda, and hence a lot of the people who have been in the forefront of that have been Christian. But it's once you get... I mean, it's the loss of a doctrine of sin, really, is that the heart of everything, that if you believe that, in fact, you know, we are perfectible as we are, which is the, the, the heart of the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment has sort of a number of planks, but I mean, it's the deus one, you know, that God, if he exists, never interferes. So that's why you don't have miracles, right? And the Bishop of Durham is a classic, you know, enlightenment, deistic kind of um, theologian. God, if he exists, you know, he's up there, but he doesn't interfere with us, so he certainly won't be intervening, and you never have the possibility of a miraculous intervention. But then on the sin front, which is the other side, which is basically gives you the perfectibility of man, which uh, then says that that's either through education or evolution. Evolution makes time redemptive, basically. Education just means we can redeem ourselves. And um, the other thing on that is, and that's why you have such a thrust on education, education becomes such a primary value. Now, sure, education has always been a Christian value. It's always been the Christians, actually, who've in the forefront of education, actually, as a matter of empirical fact in the history of Western Europe. But the other thing which is so important is that, of course, once you believe that perfectibility thing, you automatically get relativism, um, big or pluralism, relativistic pluralism, because what you say is this, that if we're in principle perfectible, nothing can ever be wrong. And the whole notion of being able to talk about right and wrong goes out the window. And then what happens is, you see, that um, you can say, as, because, you know, in principle, everybody is right. In principle. You know, what is, is. And in fact, Leibniz actually said that. Um, you know, what is, is right. And um, if you've got that kind of mood and that kind of view, you can say for yourself, you know, for me, for instance, you know, I don't, for me, it's not right to be homosexual. But I can only say that for me. But, you know, for you, I can't say you're wrong if you want to be. Do, do you follow? And equally, well, that's on practice and ethics, but equally on the ideas front, uh, it follows that um, no one can be false as well as, uh, uh, or, or particularly true. And so you can say, now my views are that, you know, the Christian faith is true. And I can say that for myself. But I can't say of anyone else that in principle you are actually in error. 
because we're all perfectible. Do you see? Inherently, there's this goodness. And all I'm saying is there's this kind of thrust through this whole philosophy to a kind of relativistic position and also this inability to say anything is wrong or anything, anyone is in error. And you see, that's what you get sadly with all these bishops today in the Church of England and the other denominations, just as bad. Because you'll notice people were witness to themselves saying, I believe this, I want to tell my story. This is the jargon they use. But what they won't do is say, and they may affirm even the uniqueness of Christ, but they still refuse to say someone else is wrong. It's a sort of paralysis which has come through this whole enlightenment, optimistic, humanistic tradition. It's a paralysis that stops anyone saying anything is wrong or false. It's a kind of psychological block. And I don't know if you noticed that, but I mean, it goes with this relativizing approach to life. It allows you to be affirmative, but not to be denying. Yeah, the question is... And I just wanted to ask if you thought the main difference between secular humanism and Christian humanism is that in secular humanism, people assume that evil in people is created by the society they live in. And in Christian humanism, we tend to assume that evil in society is created by the people who live in it. Absolutely, yes. I mean, that... that well, I mean, all these, in one sense, all these... Um, Debates play, are playing out debates and issues that are there from, sadly, the fall. Um, but you're quite right. I'm sure that's, that's right. It's a package, that, though, and this is a terribly important one. It's to do with where is, where is evil located. And uh, you see, the Bible makes it quite clear, and Jesus makes it quite clear, that, uh, as he says in, we read much of, out of the heart of man proceeds evil thoughts. You know, lust, adultery, all the rest of it, murders, and so forth. Whereas uh, what um, a lot of people want to do is locate evil in the external environment. You know, your upbringing, your social uh, circumstances and so forth. Now, the Bible makes it quite clear, but very soon in the history of the church, um, indeed by the time of Augustine, Pelagius was uh, a heretic who um, actually denied original sin and was, in that sense, an early optimistic humanist. But he located evil, not in the human heart, which is where Augustine wanted it to be located, but actually externally. And that fight is going on all the time. And sadly, my judgment, you get it today in the churches. Now, it's not to say that the external circumstances and the environment mustn't be attended to, because you must. And indeed, maybe you have to start attending to the external circumstances to get to the heart. But the question is, you know that at the end of the day, the root problem is not those external circumstances, but in the heart. And until you realise that, that individuals are the source of you know, damaging the world in which we live, you won't get anywhere. And I think you're right in that. But it's a battle that has to be fought because Christians so easily get sucked into sort of social gospels which is saying that what the gospel is all about is changing society. Now, of course, the gospel is concerned with society, and the gospel wants, Jesus Christ, wants society to be changed. So you have a wide kind of overall agenda, but in terms of your strategy, unless you go to the heart of the problem, which is the individual, you'll never get that change of society. So a Christian humanist and someone who's following the Bible is concerned for everything, the whole of life. But you have the sense to realise that you follow Christ's kind of diagnosis 
and go for the root problem first of all. But you're quite right. But it's a battle that has to be fought. And actually, it's so insidious, that. And sadly, I mean, you get evangelicals, quotes, or, you know, orthodox people who gradually shift. And, you know, instead of preaching the gospel and seeing salvation um, from sin through the cross, new birth by the Holy Spirit, at the centre of everything, you know, they start going out into kind of social action as being really what the gospel's all about, which... Um, uh, is very dangerous because one wants to be involved in that. Uh, and if you're preaching the gospel, you must be involved in social uh, affairs. But you must realize that you can't have that as the, the, the prime. That's the consequence. That's the fruit. It's like works and sanctification. You must work for sanctification. You must work for holiness. But that is the fruit of being justified by being accepted by Christ freely, with you contributing absolutely nothing to your salvation. <laughs> it's so critical, that. Yes, thank you. Good point. Yes. Um, you mentioned uh, people like Locke and Rousseau and uh, Montesquieu, and I'm not quite sure to what extent you were suggesting that these were the, the architects of, 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 of secularism or humanism. But these people are associated, as we all know, with the fundamentals of democratic forms of government and so on. Do you think there is a, a connection, or to what extent do you think there's a, there's a connection between our modern democratic philosophy, the underlying principles of modern democracy, and the, uh, the optimism which you described tonight? Do you, for example, believe that, while you mentioned that the, the uh, modern education is underpinned by optimism, that the same can be said of democracy? And if so, what do you think is the future of democracy? That's a very good point, but it's, quite, it's, it's very critical because, and this is where America comes in, because as you're aware, that I mean, a lot of the American experiment was motored by the Enlightenment and um, a lot of this thinking. But the interesting thing about America was, and this is the way, you know, God overrules, you know, even the wrath of man to praise, to, turns the wrath of man to praise him. That, I mean, I think you're quite right that, um, well, it's republicanism, straight, naked republicanism, that um, because uh, actually the strong Christian basis, not least the congregationalist basis, well, I mean, a range of, 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 of kind of Christian cultures that were in America, which were as decadent, you know, after their first phase of enthusiasm, you know, they all got woolly and all the rest of it. Nevertheless, I think that there was a check on the naked, as it were, um, kind of, um, well, what you might have got a Marxist, you know, kind of communistic kind of um, republicanism, was the gospel, and not least um, the work of Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, you know, the, the great revivals, which are all going on at the same time. And you see, what you had in America, unlike France, was actually those revivals. And what you had in Britain, unlike France, was the evangelical revival. And it was the marrying uh, of... I mean, these kind of Republican ideas, which, I mean, let's face it, if, if a lot of them are based on the way the world is, and if you believe, as I do, uh, and as certainly as Calvin uh, uh, believes, that God is overall, and there's common grace as well as saving grace, and that common grace is something that we're all, you know, pagans and Christians are equally interested in, these guys are picking up bits of common grace, well, so be it. Or Pastor Elba, and that's what I was saying. I think we've got to be very careful, because... At certain points, the whole humanistic tradition, even the modern one, which we totally oppose, picked up some things which jolly need, would certainly need to be picked up. That's why we've got to, you know, to be fair in one's analysis. 
you've got to affirm the good bits as well as the bad bits. Um, but I think in America, the, the Christian tradition had a huge inf in influence. And, and indeed, this is the argument of um, the... Uh, well, it was uh, uh, de Tocqueville who went and, and just was absolutely amazed at, uh, in America how this was married to kind of Christian congregations and this, this very strong congregationalism in America whereby you had little democracies and the little platoons, as, as I think Burke calls them, which are these mediating sort of structures whereby the whole kind of de democratic thing mixed with the kind of Christian emphasis of the body of Christ meant that um, you, you had lots of small groups of people all meeting together, you know, in little hamlets and all the rest of it, developing kind of um, democratic ways of working. But they were infused with what you might call Christian values. And I think, quite honestly, democracy only works when you have Christian values. And once you lose the Christian values, it's very hard to see that a democracy can actually survive. Because, you know, what... And that's what's frightening. You know, what is the, um, the glue that will hold it together? And, uh, I mean, if you just... I mean, this is... If you read um, Plato and uh, on, on different forms of government, I mean, you get uh, democracy moves into um, ochlocracy, you know, the rule of the masses, which can be disastrous things, which happened, of course, at the time of the French Revolution. You know, democracy, which is... See, democracy implies restraint. You know, we have the sort of model in the back of our mind of Westminster, but, I mean, there are huge amounts of restraints that are in place there, which are all sort of subconscious. It's not just people getting together... And doing that's why you know when you sit up these countries in Africa. I was in the Sudan uh, after the university, and you know you try and the British try to set up um, democracies. You can't just do that, um, you know. And what's what's the future? Well, I gain back to where I, what I said before. Unless there's a, a renewal of the Christian faith and the preaching of the gospel, I don't have a great deal of hope for the Western world, to be quite honest. And what I fear personally is in a country like ours is a return to. Uh, uh, well, not a return to, but you, you're more likely to get fascist. I think you get fascism, really, rather than a sort of left-wing uh, mood. There's a difference, is there? Oh, that's another question. <laughs> <laughs> yes? Just could I ask, um, would you say that uh, the Christian church over the last 200 years has mostly been reacting to the state of affairs posed from the uh, Notre Dame incident and uh, is there any way that you can see if, if that is the case, is there any way that you can see that it should could be proactive rather than reactive um, yes that's a good question that. I mean I think I think I suppose as Christians we've got to be both reactive and proactive all the time that if you believe that we are fallen and that actually we await the return of the Lord before you know, every tear is wiped away and all the problems go, there will always be situations which we've got to react to. That's to say other people will, do, will be doing bad things in the world. And you know, if we're going to be Christian, we cannot just ignore it. So we must be reacting. The danger is that if you spend all your time doing that, you never move forward. You're just stopping other people, as it were, 
um, pulling the plug out. And I don't think, you know, we're meant to do that as Christians. We, we've got to be doing that. So we have to be negative. But I think equally, we need to be positive as well. Now, has the church done that? Um, well, it's certainly doing it in some parts of the world, and some churches do it, and some churches don't. So you, it's very difficult to say, does the Christian church do, do it globally or en masse? Um, I think you just have to take situation by situation. I mean, I can tell you churches of churches in the United States, which are quite remarkable. Um, I can tell you of churches which are unremarkable, you know, I mean, are doing nothing. So, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting question, that. The answer is we should be react proactive. Um, we should be planning uh, strategies to, um, you know, move one step ahead. I mean, some of us, you know, at one stage were interested in getting a CTC going, you know, in um, Tyneside, John said Master now. Now, is that a proactive or a reactive strategy? It's in part both, isn't it? Because you're reacting, because you're so fed up with what's going on around in the educational world that you decide you must proact. So the proaction is stimulated by a reaction. Yeah, that's a good question. Thank you, Howard. Any other questions? Yes. Uh, I seem to be absolutely surrounded by optimistic humanism. I hardly know where to start with questions, but I'm surprised that in what you said there's something like a kind of conspiracy theory when you're talking about a relatively small number of people in late mm -hmm. relatively small people, number of people, the cafe society, or what you call it, the chatterers, when um, there seems to me to be, it seems to be far wider in, in politics, particularly in those times. I mean, what part did optimistic humanism play in the formulation of the people, for instance, who are seeking you know, empire for, for, you know, for Germany, and, but for all the nations of Europe? Um, and I have a particular interest in the causes and the consequences of the Second World War. And after the Second World War, there was a great outburst of optimism about what human beings could now do, you know, with the formation of the United Nations and things like that, and the welfare state. You know, once again, despite the amazing setbacks, people still believed they could take their destiny in their own hands and shape their future and that everything was yes. at their command. Now... You seem to be kind of blaming a cult, a little, you know, almost like the educators. But it seems to me in Britain, at least, the politicians have been just as much, and you know, off left and right. Mm, mm, mm. Surely the the Enlightenment tradition, with you know, the idea of the Scottish Enlightenment, with the, the market theory itself, mm, mm. involves this idea that if we get the apparatus right, the whole thing will come clean. Yes, I mean, that's a big complex uh, sort of. Uh set of issues, but I mean, what you've got... But the central thing I'm asking yes. is about your conspiracy theory, yeah, or yeah. what's something well, like no, I, I, mean, I, I don't can't believe that's true. Theory. I think that certain things happen um, which actually mean that certain kind of strands evolve. I mean, the whole... I mean, we, we are in the modern world, and the modern world is, is made up of, you know, going back before the Enlightenment to the kind of, you know, the development of science, you know, in the, the, the 17th century. And then in the 18th century, what you get is this evolution of technology married in the 19th century with capitalism, which enables technology to be kind of harnessed in new ways, which means the whole world develops, right? Now, that is the modern world, uh, in, in a nutshell, um, the, the Western modern world, which is this mixture of knowledge, 
then technology, then kind of capitalistic sort of expertise to get the technology to make us, nowadays we have washing machines, cars and all the rest of it. And we know we don't have cans, we've got electric light here uh, tonight. Now, what is the, the change, the new thing? Now that's going on, and, and the human nature has been the same ever since. But the society was working still in, as it were, traditional ways, particularly in the ways in which values were carried. And this is where we go back to the family. That you see, in all those generations, and this is where Norman Dennis is so right, the traditional, the, the, the way values were primarily carried was through the family, which is a primary carrier of values. But what has happened, among other things, this century, and particularly since the post-war period, and it is the post-war period, not before the war, since the Second World War, it has been the breakdown of the family, which inevitably will have a breakdown in the way you can carry values. Now, going side by side with this is what I was referring to with the sort of new class theory, is that in this modern period, in the post-modern period, following on this modern period, you've had a split, this is the, in a nutshell, you've had a split in the middle class between kind of primary producers, goods and services and all that sort of stuff, and that includes people doctors, who are pra people doing practical things, and in the jargon, people who are purveyors, on the other hand, of symbolic wisdom, let's say knowledge and ideas, you know, not concrete stuff. So, you know, um, if you produce goods and services, and the middle class is got expanding because of all this technology, wealth is increasing uh, considerably, you've had a split, and the split has come in the middle, and you've got now what is called the old middle class, but you've got this new class, knowledge class, as it's called, which controls information in postmodern societies. Now, this is what is so critical. This is the new thing. And it controls information because, or through the educational empire, through the media, and through the electronic services. And these groups, which are quite new, carry values in ways in which they've never done before, not least because of the breakdown of the family. Now, this has grown and grown. It grows every year. But, I mean, it, it, it sort of starts really only in the 60s. And the 60s is, is when this actual phenomenon is occurring. I may say this kind of new class analysis um, was first identified by a guy who's one of the signatories, I may say, of the humanist, the second humanist um, uh, manifesto, Gilas, that he was Tito's sidekick, who went to, um, from uh, Yugoslavia to Moscow and saw what was going on with the bureaucratization of um, Stalinism, and suddenly realised that far from the proletariat, the, you know, the, the working class, being at the end of the, 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 the golden highway, everything was basically existing for the bureaucracy uh, at, in, in, in Moscow. And the entire apparatus of the kind of communist empire was to feed, as it were, this vast array of bureaucrats. And they got better cars, they got better... You know, he developed it, he wrote the book, The New Class, and it's a, a kind of taking up from this. Now, all I'm saying is that, that this is new, and, and it's to do with the way society... So it's not a plot, because people don't suddenly go into school teaching saying, I'm going to subvert everybody, I'm going to suddenly fish out, you know, what Condorcet said in the blah, 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 you know. You don't do it like that. All I'm saying is that what happens is certain things are happening, and we don't realise it. And I think it's so critical we do realise what is happening. Because there isn't a... See, if you've got a liberal plot, it's much easier. Because you can then go and knock the guys who are causing the trouble. When what is going on is a whole host of sort of factors, you don't realise it because everybody is, is, is quite, you know, 
that their, 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 their intentions are good. You know, people who go into school teaching don't go into school teaching and say, I want to subvert these kids. You know, they go in there with the best will in the world. Even the psychiatrists and the, the doctors who are on the therapeutic side don't go in and say, I want to mess up this person. You know, someone saying, I think you ought to sleep with everybody else. It's not actually wanting, in their mind, damage that person. They think, I want them to be liberal, whatever they said. You know, these, you know, be fulfilled as a person. Do you see? There isn't a plot going on. But, nevertheless, what has happened has been that, at the end of the 19th, intelligentsia was a sort of word um, the Russians actually uh, invented. But they were just a tiny minority. These groups were insignificant. Because the main way in which values and cultures were carried were so different. But what has happened has been some bizarre groups, as I would put it, have had huge significance simply because of the way information now is spread in postmodern. Obviously, you know, you get some guy on television who does not represent the majority of people saying something, and everybody feels, help, do I have to think that? On the homosexual issue, we know from the, the, the Welcome Survey, you know, the um, Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyle Survey, that 70% of all men in Britain uh, believe that always or usually homosexual activity is wrong. That is 70, and in the North, if you look at the, the breakdown, it's much higher in the North because obviously London carries a lower weighting. What I'm saying is that is the actual reality. Now, would you get that from, would you think that from looking at the radio, uh, the television? You wouldn't. You get gay programs, left, right, What I'm saying is that that there's all sorts of ways which ideas are distorted. And I honestly do think this is a new thing, but it's not a plot. It's, it's the way certain things happen. Yes, but there is a kind of evangelical mythology to which sets, um, perhaps, uh, as it were, the mass of ordinary people and a group of f f folks in the media or whatever. I think it was in the, in the, in the programme for the <coughs> lectures. The, you know, a lot of people have some sort of adherence to Christianity, but the world occupied by the media politics... But that is true. Ideas. I mean, sorry, the, 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 when you've done social analysis... Um, the actual values of people, for example, in the media and in education, on what they think, for instance, about homosexuality and drugs and so forth, is actually more, in simple terms, more liberal than people, you know, who are, you know, doing, living in Biker, Benwell, um, Elsick and so forth. I mean, that is, I'm afraid, empirically the case. I'm going to let somebody ask yeah. you. I'll ask you a question. Thank you very much. Yeah. The media do have enormous influence. I, it's uh, in one of, uh, we're doing a course on worldviews at Emmanuel College, and, uh, to introduce it, and these are six formers, by the way, we asked them to sort of look at a map of the world and a map of Britain and, and to, to guess. These are intelligent people. The number of percentage of Buddhists in Britain. A lot of people thought about 30%. Now, I was able to say there's one in Low Fells, one I'm aware of, but I mean, 30% <laughs> I mean, is a kind of view, and they, you absorb this. They, they do just absorb it. I, I, I mean, we better stop, I think. But I, I, I fear the church actually neither reacts nor is proactive, but just sits back and absorbs. It astonishes me that so many evangelical Christians today have a, a, an unbiblical view of man and God, that they actually behave as if everyone were full Christians. Um, and I would have thought that uh, we haven't reacted we haven't been proactive. We have done what Paul warns, what warns us not to do, that we actually have allowed the world just to squeeze us into its mould and that uh, we've just ignored that, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. We, we've just not done that, it seems to me. 
crunch that. Can I just say one further thing? I mean, I think the crunch thing is just we have to evangelise. I mean, at the end of the day, if we see that as the primary obligation of day and night, as it were, then everything else fits into place. And um, I think we've got to analyse as well as evangelise. I mean, I think because otherwise we, we've got to target clearly our evangelism and see where strategically we go. But I don't think we can afford as Christians not to actually get our map work right with regard to you know the evolution of tendencies and drifts and so forth. Because um, the sorts of things you say in your evangelism are contingent upon the sort of environment you find yourself in. And you don't quite know what environment you're in unless you really analysed the whole drift. Um, and particularly... Uh, I take, I mean, John's point is that the the power of what are called plausibility structures, which the media and all this uh, generate around us, which mean that we assume and people assume certain things are automatically right and wrong. A plausibility mm-hmm. structure being there are forty percent whatever it is, Buddhists in Britain, which is totally false. But that comes out through the media and others. And um, you have to realise that 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 is going on, and therefore it's very important as a Christian you counter all those plausibility traps, because when you can talk and share the gospel with someone, those people you're talking to now have got such a lot of information which is distorted in their minds that they hardly hear what you're saying. And you have to actually clear away some of this debris. And it is pretty basic that um, we know, uh, you know, what is, as I say, the map work, what is the facts. And I think myself, why I've found on the, on the humanistic front, I think seeing the threads of it, it does alter what is being said, and of course there's a truth question at the end of the day, you know, is the gospel true, did Jesus rise from the dead, these are the things that matter. But nevertheless, it sort of um, pricks the balloon a little bit, I think. If you see, you can trace where humanism has come from and see its ancestry, although, you know, that doesn't decry humanism, you know, the mere fact that it's got this weird ancestry from the encyclopedias and all the rest of it doesn't actually invalidate when you're arguing with someone today, because they say, I actually think, you know, man is the measurable things. Nevertheless, from our point of view, you can see how, and you feel less frightened, because otherwise, you, you hear these educationists sort of talking big, you know, a kind of humanism too manifesto, and you feel frightened. Where you say, sorry, Chan, we've seen all that, and it's, it's pretty funny where it's come from, so it no longer has a bewitching effect on me. I think we must stop there. Uh, I don't think you're going to dash off immediately.